You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I have a uh, announcement to make. It's this. The uh, Longform Podcast is throwing a party. It's on February 13th at the Bell House. You, if you are listening to this, are invited. Tickets are free, but there is a suggested donation. The party is in honor of uh, Evan Ratliff, my co-host's new book. It's called The Mastermind, and the suggested donation is uh, buy a copy of Evan's book. The book, I can tell you, is incredible, and you uh, don't have to take my word for it. I'm, I am incredibly biased, although the book really is good. Publishers Weekly just reviewed it. They called it a true crime classic. It is legitimately a great book, and we are celebrating the incredible amount of effort that Evan put into it with this party, but we're also going to do uh, a live version of the show, and the guest... I am pleased to announce is uh, one of my favorite long-form podcast guests ever, Taffy Broadesser-Ackner of the New York Times. You have read her stuff. It has made you laugh. It has made you feel all kinds of feelings. She is going to be with us, uh, potentially some other folks. Come out February 13th, Bell House, Brooklyn, New York, long-form podcast party. Tickets are free. See you there. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Good afternoon, Max. Who how, did you speak to? Uh, uh, it doesn't matter how we are. <laughs> None of that matters. Um, I talked to Julie Snyder. Her uh, official title is CEO of Serial Productions, but she is um, best known as the editor of Serial, the podcast. Uh, you guys know it. The first season uh, changed the entire landscape of podcasting. Their third season just wrapped. It was uh, stories from one courthouse in Cleveland, ordinary cases uh, told week by week. Julie was also the editor of S-Town. We had uh, Brian Reed from S-Town in the day after that show launched, but she was the co-creator of that. She is a uh, behind-the-scenes person. Uh, she was at This American Life for 18 years before Serial. She was the senior producer for a long time, sort of managing the show. But she only did radio stories herself, like on the mic for a couple of years and decided to give that up. And, and, and behind the scenes, people are um, rare in radio. Uh, and so we talked about that. We talked about why she decided to get off the mic. And then also we talked about like basically everyone I've talked to from This American Life on long form, uh, Brian Reed, our glass, Zoe Chase, 
at one point or another in those conversations, they've all said that uh, Julie is kind of the genius behind the place. So we talked about uh, how she thinks about structure and what her actual job is. Uh, she was great. It was We talked for a really long time. She was, uh, you know how sometimes people just come to this thing and like they're just game? She was game. If you are looking uh, to tell people what's going on behind the scenes in your company, do it with a newsletter, MailChimp newsletter. Uh, everyone likes email. No one likes anything but email, <laughs> and that's the state of the world. Thank you to MailChimp. Max, it was very good to see you in the emergency room <laughs> oh, this yeah. week. That I was feel a- like I, normally uh, normally we try to keep it professional on this uh, these show introductions, but I uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> just for the longtime fans out there who've uh, known Max and I since our uh, FIFA playing days, uh, we ran into each other in the middle of the night at a pediatric ER <laughs> this week. I think you have to say everyone's fine. Everyone's fine. Everyone's fine. Everyone's um, fine. I got to tell you, looking through, it was like one of those doors with just like the thin uh, window, you know, yeah. and I like poked my head through to see what kind of like line situation we were looking at. And Aaron just sitting there with his daughter. And it was so surreal. And like I caught uh, Aaron's wife's eye for a second and she stared at me for like five seconds and then looked away like it just like it just couldn't be real it was so it was so disconcerting and then uh we spent they uh put us together like beds next to each other it was a real long form podcast moment i'm gonna actually bring up several other things happened uh, <laughs> a on the way there we were having the discussion is the first time we've ever taken a child to the emergency room we were having a discussion about um whether we needed to go to the emergency room or not and i said Max takes his kid to the emergency room all the time. (laughs) Okay. And it was true. (laughs) That is true. Also, we're just going to acknowledge this. Uh, You took your daughter to the emergency room because it was like the first time she'd ever cried. Yeah, she was constipated. (laughs) I'd also like to say that once we got... Well, actually... They offered Max a room, but there was no offer for a room for me. And Max was like, it'll be fine. Come in the room. Then we were later assigned the other half of that room, which had some sort of a uh, like uh, extremely elaborate like uh, TV monitor on wheels with a video game rig. Max was playing FIFA in the hospital. <laughs> My kid was fine, too. <laughs> we're going to put out the rest of this story as a special episode. <laughs> in the meantime, here's Max with Julie Snyder. Hey, Julie. Hello. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm happy that you're here. I feel like it's like a long time coming. We've been trying to do this for a while. I'm really happy to do it. You, yeah. You did bounce me. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, yeah, you did. That's bullshit. You did. No. In favor of Hana. No, 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 no. no. It wasn't a. It wasn't a full bounce. It was a bounce-ish. It, well, there had been like mutual <laughs> bouncing. <laughs> bounce you well you didn't you you uh the first email in our chain of like i know is me apologizing you're right but also because i was trying to do like a live thing okay you said no sorry 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 and i only bounced you for your colleague (laughs) but it wasn't even a bounce i made you promise that you would do it thank you yeah you're right anyway yeah i'm glad to be doing this i'm really happy to be here no one needs to relive our like apology stack email chain (laughs) um but i'm glad you're here and the one nice thing about uh, you being here, if we had done it before, we wouldn't have had season three of Serial. Yeah. To talk now about. we have season three. Yeah. Can we start there? Oh, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Okay. 
Here are some things that I, I wondered listening to it. One is, how do you guys decide to do that? Like my imagination is that you could have done almost anything for season two or for season three. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in how you decide to do the courthouse in Cleveland. I mean, we had a couple of other ideas, but this was the one I felt like I had the most clear vision on because it was one that I had thought about doing since even, I think even before season one. Um, I had read a book called Courtroom 302 where uh, this Chicago reporter, he's a really great reporter in Chicago, and he did the same kind of thing. We basically just ripped it off from him. He spent a year in one courtroom in Cook County in Chicago. And Who's that? His name is Steve Bogira. And when I read his book, I just... I just felt like I, oh, 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 this is how it works. I mean, first of all, he like, he scratched itches that I've always wondered, which is one of his opening scenes is just um, basically uh, defendants when right after they get arrested and moved from the precinct police stations and brought over to the courthouse um, when they're getting arraigned. And I had sort of wondered how much information does a judge have in front of them when they're making the determination of whether or not this person gets bail, um, if they get released on their own recognizance, if they go back to jail, what? And he describes it. It's crazy. They have all the defendants lined up. There's a hallway that's sort of like behind the courtroom, mm -hmm. you know, so they come in through the back door. And they have them all lined up in that hallway. And whoever is like closest to the door, you're on deck. And he described that basically the moment you walk from being on deck to like, say, the batter's box, yeah. you know, to the middle of the room. And that takes, I think he described it as taking seven seconds. And that's the amount of time where they determine, you know, your future for the next six months. Right. Your fate's decided in seven seconds. Yeah. And I just was like, that is fascinating to me this is fascinating nobody is weighing evidence nobody is thinking does this make any sense are these strong charges like is there are there two sides to the story you know there's nothing like that and so i really loved that and then he he really structures the book in a whole way of where i mean you know he just you definitely see there are just two criminal justice systems mm -hmm. at work there is one for white chicagoans and one for black chicagoans and there is so much gaslighting going on pretending like that doesn't exist by white Chicagoans but mainly all the people in power in the justice system are white mm -hmm. so they're the ones who are kind of you know they tell a story that it does not reflect reality at all so that idea had been kicking around with you for for a while like yeah, you, you, like, you wanted to do a series on it I was just like that'd be so cool to do I feel like this is such a good idea it's so clean you know it's such mm -hmm. a clean idea of like one year in one courtroom and sorry it, can you just tell me a little bit more about what do you mean by clean idea it's just a simple concept you know what I mean there was nothing that complicated ex about explaining what he was doing and then I also was just like, it's just one story. You know, every case is just a different story. And so mm -hmm. I was like, God, oh, this is like a story machine, you know? <laughs> and they're just like stories, 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 stories. So, and then it was really an imperative. I love the season one story. I love the Idnan Syed case. I, I did feel, I mean, I had so many feelings after that story came out. But the feeling of like kind of being like, you guys really 
expose the criminal justice system, I always felt weird about it. Because if anything, I felt like the story was way more about journalism than it was about the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. I thought we said a lot more about the nature of being a writer and a reporter (laughs) and what it's like (laughs) and what that means and what the trade-offs are and kind of like just that whole process. I felt like we kind of opened that up a lot more than the actual criminal justice system. I mean, to an extent. What were your other feelings? About the season one story? Yeah. Oh my God, I had so many feelings. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... (laughs) It was weird. It's weird to be that public. Mm-hmm. And I, at least, I my name was not the public name, you know? That was Sarah. And God, for her, even what she went much more into a bunker. But I think both of us just, we have egos, but we don't have big enough egos to absorb what that was. Instead, we both felt very um, kind of humiliated and embarrassed and did not want all that attention and couldn't handle criticism either. Like that, we were really... I mean, I try. I am constantly second guessing myself. I am full of regret and recrimination all the time. And I kind of, I don't pride myself on it because it probably goes too far. But in other ways, I do feel like I am a person who is very flawed and I make mistakes and I try and learn from them and I try and be very open to other people's thoughts and their input and, and everything like that. So to be that open to criticism was like rough after the first season because we just got so much attention. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, while like a lot of it was, you know, I could feel like people being like, oh, go cry on your bags of money. Like, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) you guys got all, you know, it was huge. I got that. But at the same time, it's hard to ignore and I would tell myself, I don't want to pull one of these like Taylor Swift, like haters going to hate. You know what I mean? Like I was just like, that's for dumb people. That's what dumb, insecure people do is convince themselves that critics are just haters. So what do uh, smart, secure people do? I think like try and figure it out and sort through it and figure out like what seems fair so you- and what doesn't and what do you want to change and like what have you learned moving forward and all that kind of stuff. And But that was like kind of painful and stressful and anxiety provoking. Yeah, I can imagine that. So I want to get back to Cleveland, but yeah, now, now I have real questions for you about this. Uh, okay, so you said like we have egos, but they're not quite big enough for all that attention. Yeah. So like um, when your ego cup like runs over, <laughs> where, where does that attention go? Like what 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 do you do? I mean, ignore it, then try and just like put a cap on it of being like, there's only so much I can read. Um, There's only so much I can kind of take in right now. I'm kind of going to have to wait. And I think I've definitely, I've gotten a lot better about that now. At the time, that was a little hard because I, you know, at This American Life, when we would do stories, it's weird to do radio stories because you don't get immediate feedback, you know? And so you work really hard on this thing and then you put it out on the airwaves and you're not really sure if anyone's listening and if they had any response then as like kind of social media started building like you get a a little bit you know so I know when we were producers at This American Life you know sometimes you put out a story that you really loved and you'd be like checking Facebook that weekend and stuff to see what people liked when we did Serial at first 
I was used to reading that stuff. Then partially I felt like it was my job to read a lot of it because I needed to be aware of what was going on. But then after a while, I was just like, I <laughs> I can't handle this. And I deputized somebody. I was like, just let me know if there's anything that comes up that you think I should know. Otherwise, I, I need a break. Yeah, you can't be just sitting there like searching like a serial on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. no, no, it was hard. Hey, I'm going to uh, stop this conversation about podcasts with Julie. Tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called First Day Back. Uh, it's all about people coming back from the hardest experiences of their lives. Last season was about Lucy and her life after serving a prison sentence for shooting her own husband. The story, as uh, you can imagine, is pretty intense. Go back and listen to that one. It's uh, incredibly well-researched. It's well-made. Got rave reviews from places like The Guardian. But they got a new season out. The host is a documentarian, Tally Abacassis, and she's telling the story of a comedian who basically died on stage. His heart stopped for five minutes, um, and Tally tells the story of that and what happens next. Go find First Day Back in your podcast app now. Give it a listen, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes from this new season. Go check it out. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Julie. Were there um, critiques of it that has stuck with you? Yeah. I mean, there's one, one of the main ones was actually, weirdly, that not a lot of people talked about, but a friend of mine talked to me about, and I thought was totally fair, especially after we just did season three, which is that we did not really explore the fact that Jay, as a black teenager, as like a black man in Baltimore, especially at that time, to cooperate with the police was bonkers and just the context of what he would be facing. And I had a friend of mine who, who he was, he's a little older than Jay, but he grew up in DC and he was saying to me that that was like his one criticism of it. And he was like, you know, and think at that time in Baltimore. And I think that might've been right around, maybe it was a few years after, remember like the mother in Baltimore who had tried to organize like a block association because of the drug dealing on the block and then they firebombed her house. Yeah. And, he was just like, you know, we were, it was just coming off of like the years of that, like no snitching was so huge and fundamental and part of your identity that he just felt like that was like a really, like that we were blinders on that one. And I think he was totally right. So, you know, like in an editorial way, I was, I've always just been like, okay, yeah, we, we fucked that up and we should have gone there and we should have understood it. And then in the other way, sometimes like I'm just, I feel like, you know, the whole question was like, is it too entertaining? Are you making it too entertaining? Are you um, like sort of in, in an exploitative way, which was like an interesting way. For, that was the thing that and I honestly still kind of struggle with it because I felt really conscious when we were making the first season of I really don't want this to feel like a Dateline story. I really don't want to feel like we're doing, um, you know, there are entire networks that are devoted to murder stories about like teenage white girls. Like, I really don't want to be in there. I want to be very respectful um, to her family. And the way kind of we did that is we didn't talk about her that much because I felt like talking about her that much would be assuming that we really knew her. And we don't. We don't know her. And 
to pretend like in some goopy sentimental way of like let us really remember who the real victim is here and then goop it up just to me I felt like was such a hack false move a cynical hack false move that I recognized from like other tv shows and documentaries and I was like no way I can't live with myself going and like we're not going to do that and so it was also like you know we're not going to no pictures none of that kind of stuff But then still, like, we get kind of, we got a lot of criticism as if it was, like, entertainment. It was too entertaining Mm -hmm. or that we were exploiting it. And I think that's where it was hard for me to figure out, like, what to do with that because I was like, wow, I really felt like we were trying, you know, (laughs) like, basically, we really could have gone much further. Yeah, you should have seen the shit that that we didn't do. Really? (laughs) Um, But also, I don't know how to structure a story. I don't know how to make stories that aren't compelling and have, like, anecdotal drama and feeling and wanting to know what happens next. Like, I don't really actually know how to do it without doing that to me a little bit I'm just like make it more boring is that what you're saying but you know we struggled with it on season three too because there was a bit of a feeling when we were halfway through the season there is an episode that Emmanuel Jochi the co-host this season did about this guy Jesse Nickerson and it is like a, it's a nut story like Jesse gets beat up by these two cops in his suburb in East Cleveland and but they actually get prosecuted and one of them goes to prison. and But then he's living in fear of retaliation. Emmanuel is actually with him in a moment where they do kind of have a creepy surveillance scene with one of the cops. Yeah. East Cleveland has some really insane, insane stories of um, and lawsuits and proven cases of things that they've done to arrestees in East Cleveland and locking them in rooms for five days without food or water. And so so anyway, there were like kind of like events that happened in that episode. And Emmanuel was also then later with Jesse where Jesse gets arrested, like sort of in a surprise arrest kind of in a courthouse. And I knew like, obviously I knew like there was a lot of drama that happened in that, like in Jesse's story it, and things because of Emmanuel being with him at those moments that he was actually like capturing in the moment. And so, of course, like, you know, there's a structure to that story of being like, okay, we're Jesse's a two parter story. We'll do the first part that is these scenes and like laying out his fear of the police, which is like a well founded fear. Then I have like more of an interest because he kept on going with Jesse and we'll do the second part of the story about Jesse's trauma. And there was a lot of this response after the first part of Jesse's story aired that we saw of from white people of like, holy shit, I didn't see it going that way. That was a crazy plot twist. Now this is the serial I wanted. That kind of response. Because there was drama? I guess. And I just felt I listened to this podcast, you know, then there are people who do podcasts about our podcast. So I listened to one and it's three white people (laughs) talking about the show and having that response. And I was listening to it like at 1030 at night, like coming home on the train. And I just like, I started just like shaking. And I was like, what are we doing? And what is this? And what is this response? 
And it just made me, it filled me with just like revulsion. And then I, I was like, is this my fault? And is this because we're telling, because I put music underneath it? Is this yeah. why? Like, cause like, cause we're telling stories in an anecdotal way and I put music underneath it and I am structuring it of where you want to know what happens next, but I don't understand any other way to tell the story and I'm trying to tell an emotional story and I, am I not doing the right work to make the understood of like what is really at stake here which is like this incredibly complicated relationship that this totally normal guy has with his local police and to understand that like this isn't an extraordinary story you know what i mean that there are right. thousands if not millions of jesse nickersons who are having these same relationships and experiences and like that's horrifying and i didn't I don't know. Anyway, the next day, Emmanuel and I, and then Sarah, we all had this whole conversation about it. We went down. Oh, my God. All three of us just went down. Okay. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. We all felt horrible. We all just were like, oh, God. Sarah was dealing with all the juvenile stuff at the time. So she was just doing one interview after another that was like breaking her. And yeah, it was a dark moment. It was a dark moment. But I didn't know where to land. If I'm hearing you correctly, it's a, the thing that freaked you out on the train was that you were doing this work that was supposed to shed light on a thing mm -hmm. that people are not familiar with and instead what they were responding to was kind of like holy shit moments in the story uh, because that's what they were used to kind of the same way you would respond to like a crazy plot twist in a movie right right exactly I think this thing is hard this question is hard like the entertainment versus journalism mm -hmm. and my theory is that is that in part it's just that it's new and right. like, like music is an interesting example of right. that like people just aren't quite used to music and journalism and it's super intimate as well i think yeah. the difference between reading somebody's quotes and hearing somebody talk at length i think is very very different there's all these moves that get made in magazine stories mm-hmm which have just come to be accepted because people have been writing stories in that style for 50 years mm -hmm. that I feel like when people hear those moves get made, and I do think it's mostly about recency, it catches their ear in some way. Mm -hmm. But then there's other factors too, like ads. Right. I feel like changes but it. It's not like you don't have an ad running down the side column of a New Yorker story. Totally. I right. just think people are used to it. Right. But there's also this intimacy thing, which is like you can choose when to have your eyes stray over to that ad. But I think the actual thing with Serial, and I wonder if you think this is true, is is mostly just that so many people listened. Yeah. Like if so many people hadn't listened, then the critique of this was entertaining wouldn't quite play. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like. Um, so entertaining that no one listened. Yeah, yeah. yeah like uh, it, the criticism is like a, like um, that it found this huge audience in mm -hmm. this way. Like it kind of does feel to me like kind of like inextricably linked with the result. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I totally agree. And I agree with you about it, the new thing too. And it's something that I actually have always wished. Sometimes I feel like it should be celebrated more. Not to be patting ourselves on our, back, our own backs, but like we are making something new in the podcast. These like definitely I feel like in the long form narrative podcast, we're making something new and probably even 
in the talk show podcast as well. I don't listen to those ones as much. I'm more a long form narrative girl. But um, I do feel like it's exciting. Like who's seen a breakthrough in narrative journalism like this, like that we've done with podcasting in the last five years. It's really exciting to watch what people are doing. So I feel and then I feel like, yeah, and then there's going to be ways that you're learning that along the way. That doesn't seem that surprising to me that we might mess up, you know what I mean? Or do something where I wouldn't do it that way, the same way again. Or like, I honestly wouldn't do a season one story again. I wouldn't do something like that. I, I mean, one is that I forgot I didn't quite realize how much people really love a murder story. You know what I mean? <laughs> I sort of underestimated the appetite for such a thing. <laughs> um, probably that kind of thing I maybe wouldn't do again. One of the um, incredible stats that we see on Longform on the website uh-huh. is, um, I guess it was two years ago, we did like the most clicked stories of the year. Mm-hmm. And every single one had... Uh, murder or sex in the title whoa except for the top story Uh which had murder and sex in the title (laughs) it's pretty it's like uh i know i feel like such a dummy being all like i didn't see this coming no it's surprising to me of course it's like even like when people are coming for like these like in-depth things to read it's still just sex and murder which has been that way for eons. Like, yeah. we're humans. It's not even an American thing. You know what I mean? It, <laughs> it, it spans all cultures. All right, I cut you off. So you wouldn't do a murder story again, but... but uh, I mean, maybe we would do a murder story again. Who knows? It depends on, like, what it's about or something. You know what I mean? But the I did not appreciate how much it was going to open everybody up, regular, normal civilians, for speculation. Yeah. That was the part. Like, for Jay, I understood that it was going to do that. I also felt like, you know, when you have a felony conviction for aiding in in a murder and disposing of a body, like, that's going to happen. <laughs> um, so I wasn't as surprised on that one. But then when it started going into a bunch of other people, I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know? So that I wouldn't, I just, no. I don't I always do that again. When all that was happening, I mean... I was I was just paying such close attention and I was thinking about you guys a lot. And I was always wondering whether like your internal narrative was just like, eh, fuck off. But it seems like that was not the case. Not totally. No. Got on I mean, top of you a little bit. Sometimes it's that way. You know, sometimes that's my internal narrative. You mean to like criticism or to Yeah. And uh, I, I had a little bit of that because there was like kind of some of that criticism about S Town. And for that, I felt like fuck off (laughs) because I thought it was very like sort of Brooklyn Greenpoint kind of criticism of where I was like, you think you're being woke and taking the mantle of sort of, you know, protection or something. But instead, I think you're being condescending thinking that somebody who lives in a small town in Alabama that somehow we're taking advantage of them mm-hmm. and that I felt more like fuck off because that was just ridiculous that was ridiculous everybody understood what they were getting into Brian had amazing relationships with he had really amazing relationships with everybody in the show that he still has that he still maintains like profound feelings and connections that people have made with each other that was where I just felt like you don't know what the fuck you're talking about that kind of criticism so I didn't feel it as much on that stuff yeah I feel like I should uh 
I could talk to you about this all day, but we should not spend a lot of, all of our time talking about uh, some assholes on the internet. Okay. <laughs> we can move on to other Great, assholes. thank you. All right. Oh, season three, though. Yeah. Well, here's what I'm... I'm interested in how you do your job. Okay. So you guys decide you're going to do this courthouse thing. You That idea's been kicking around for you for a while. I It had been kicking around for a while. Sarah had a couple of other ideas. I actually remember where we were when we decided to do it. We were like in the Days Inn in Indianapolis. And <laughs> what were you doing there? We had, to, we had to do a speech in <laughs> Bloomington, and then we had to spend the night in an airport hotel in Indianapolis. Just hanging out in Bloomington, as we do. <laughs> and so I remember being, they had a, like one of those circle couches, and so it was very hard not to lay on it. Um, but anyway, we were both sitting on the circle couch. And, and yeah, there were a couple other ideas, but we had already reached out to Cleveland before season two, because we had kicked around this idea even for season two and knew that um, we had talked to the chief judge at that time and he was open to it. And so that's why I was just like, I still have a fever for the Cleveland story. If you do, we didn't really have other ideas necessarily. And I am interested in like, what doesn't make the cut? Can you tell me? I mean, for season two, initially we were working on a Guantanamo story for season two. And that one, we really wanted to do that one. The idea of that one we thought was like a clean conceit would be like the final year of the Obama administration and watching as they tried to close Guantanamo. And then, you know, so of course working on a story like that, like you spend a ton of time like trying to get National Security Council to agree (laughs) to like give us some access. And then, you know, you're talking to various people and they're like, sure, yeah, yeah, let me run it up the flagpole or whatever. And then then we're kind of told yes, but then it's one of those things where it becomes clear as you're like starting to try and do reporting that like their vision of what access is is not what our vision of access is. And it turns out like they're just basically going to give the exact same interviews that they would give to any other reporter mm. who was reporting on Guantanamo. And and then also, you know, it's national security and stuff is classified. And, and so it was just getting harder and harder to figure out a way to do it where you could get people on the record. I think even the print reporters, you know, and there was like Carol Rosenberg and my Herald and, and Charlie Savage at the New York Times, like those guys do incredible Guantanamo reporting. It just became, I was like, there's nothing we do here that adds to their stuff. Like, I wouldn't want to do this unless it felt like we were adding to what they do instead we'd just be doing a cheap version um so we killed that um but we still had it in the back of our mind someday of like being like somebody should do this though if everyone could agree to like we're not going to worry about classifying <laughs> we're not going to worry about saying things on the record this is an amazing story it's an amazing story um but anyway so like those kinds of things like we spend time looking into stuff and then have to kill them and then for season three, I can't though honestly think of what was a different. I don't think we even had anything that felt that real. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting on the circular couch in Indianapolis, and I was like, I'm still into this one. And we had done a little bit of work at that point. Sarah had like done. I think she had gone back out. She had gone to Cleveland. She had watched a trial just to get in there and just like get her head around it and meet people and stuff like that um, just to see. And so it was at that point where I was just like, I'm still into this. I still feel like it's going to be a bitch to structure. This is going to be a real bitch to structure. And I don't have an idea necessarily of how we're going to do that. But I think like it's worth trying. Oh, one of the things we had talked about doing, although that was kind of a Cleveland thing too, 
Um, we discussed possibly trying to do like a more in-depth story about the death of Tamir Rice. Because hmm. some of the transcripts that were released on the internal investigation on that were really telling and interesting. And why didn't you do that? I think we thought it was going to be pretty hard to get the people on the police side to do on-the-record interviews. And it felt like if they weren't going to talk, we were going to be a little stymied because you wanted to have like real genuine conversations. And they were still under litigation and they're, yeah. All right. So uh, you guys decide Indianapolis, circular couch, mm -hmm. this is what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And then what part of this does Sarah do and what part do you do? So then at that point, like I basically more help with the logistics of it, of where I was like, well, obviously you can't move to Cleveland. I mean, the way we, Cleveland, the reason we did Cleveland is both because Ohio has very good recording laws like and Sarah lives in the middle of Pennsylvania she lives in State College Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania has terrible like they don't even let you like I don't even know if you can take notes in the courtroom um, so Cleveland it was both Ohio's got good transparency laws but also it's four hours from State College so yeah. it didn't seem that taxing for her to be able to go to Cleveland fairly often but I did know that I was like somebody's got to live there though we need somebody who's there every day and at that point, like I talked to Dana about it, who had worked on season one, but she didn't want to, <laughs> she didn't want to move to Cleveland. <laughs> but also, she went over to This American Life, and she was like, "I feel like I got some stories here that I want to report," and so that was totally fine. And so then at that point, Emmanuel was just finishing his fellowship at This American Life, and I really liked Emmanuel, and I really liked working with him. And he was also pretty young, and so like the idea. And then it was, you know, he's from Ohio. He went to Ohio State. All his family is still a bunch of his family is still in Toledo. He knew Cleveland pretty well, and for him, he was totally fine with moving to Cleveland. He always makes jokes about. Um, he really genuinely. He's like a Cleveland defender or booster, kind of mm -hmm. like he, he yeah, um, which is good because Sarah and I would be like much more derisive sometimes. But um, pretty good uh, career opportunity. Yeah, I guess it was a good career. opportunity. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's like kind of more what I started mm -hmm. doing just at the beginning is just handling the logistics of that and like, OK, let's move Emmanuel to Cleveland and setting up Sarah and Emmanuel live together, which was so bizarre. <laughs> but. I, I normally would never have agreed to that, but they both were agreeing to it. So I was like, okay. Emmanuel's 25. Sarah's like 48. I was like, that's what you want to do? You want to share an apartment with your 48-year-old boss? <laughs> it was so weird. But Sarah's kind of got a thing. She doesn't like hotels. and Anyway. Did that's, they, get, they get along all right? They got along fine. They got along fine. I always thought it was really funny, though, after one of like the first times that Sarah went after they had moved into the apartment, she was baffled because they had like spent the day together reporting. I think they had gone out for dinner that night with a source, like with an attorney. And Sarah was like, it was like a real dinner. Like we ate and everything. And then I think they even had drinks afterwards or something. And she said that they got back to the apartment like at 10 or 1030. It was a long night. And Emmanuel started making a chicken breast. And she was just like, what the fuck? We just ate. Like who eats it? Who starts making themselves a chicken breast at 10 30 at night and i just i loved it i was like you live with a 24 year old boy i was like i think they do and i was like second dinner that's it you just gotta yeah um but anyway 
so I kind of just and so at that point for the first couple of months a lot of what I am doing is fielding phone calls from them where they're telling me about the people that they're meeting and the stories and cases and observations. If I can, if I'm not too busy, I like logging the tape. I you there's do it a part Yeah, I like logging the tape. I just like I won't log all you know, I can't log all of it. But I like to do like kind of sample parts so that like later when I read the transcripts, like I can have them in my head and and I know that kind of stuff. So yeah, like do you have a pretty good uh, memory for that stuff? Yeah, yeah. And so then usually what we're what I do is like I'm kind of talking back the stories to them. I think they kind of give me all the details, and then I give them sort of a pitch Mm -hmm. for um, the story. So it's kind of like if I had to summarize their story, this is the way that I would summarize it. And I help. I think that helps them to get a clarity of like what to go for next. You know, in terms of reporting. I think that's usually their question is like, what else do I need or what more should I do or what's the other elements and stuff? And so having me talk it back, then we can see what we're missing. And if the hole on that one, when you decided to go for it was structure, when does that start coming into place? Not until we finished pretty much all the reporting. So that was like after probably 10 months of reporting like I felt like at that point I knew that we had like eight or nine separate stories or cases that I was pretty interested in and then a couple other topics you know and so at that point me and Sarah and Emmanuel we all we went to state college because we were always making Sarah come to New York so we agreed to go to state college for a couple of days and that's when we just start the beginning process of breaking everything down and looking at orders and thinking about like what could connect all this stuff and that's when you kind of start having like kind of crazy ideas and think like maybe we do this like really I don't know experimental structural thing (laughs) that would you know what I mean and we just have to go through that process a lot so we probably structured it over the course of it probably took us about two months to structure it because we did that and then like would put more stuff together and then we presented it all to Ben Calhoun who's a producer um, on Serial and we presented it all to Ben and got like feedback from Ben and then like kind of changed it again. You're presenting like drafts of episodes? No, we're just just talking. Just like an outline? Yeah, just talking them through the stories. And how do you and Sarah work in those two months? Like is it like uh, one idea from you, one idea from her. Are you like driving it? How how do you guys work together? Structurally, usually I'm driving it because that's like kind of what she relies on me to do is the structure part. So in those two months, I think I'm thinking about it more and I'm staring at it and then I'm playing around with it. Um, and you doing that all like in your like just like a, in your with head? This time we got, which I just realized I am still paying for, we got like an online whiteboard thing where you could put like note cards on it and it all looks like a whiteboard but you know it exists on a website yeah so we could all be on it since sarah's remote but yeah i it it took me forever to find the right (laughs) like program that would allow me to do that i spent a lot of time trying to find a computer (laughs) software program that would allow me to do that um yeah and i just got the bill for it where i realized i'm still paying four hundred dollars a year for it where i was like oops I don't need that anymore. Um, But yeah, that's what I was mainly doing and moving stuff around. 
And then once we were like, kind of like, okay, let's try this, then she wrote a first draft. But she started writing a first draft of the first episode and then was like, I think actually we should go back to this other structure and this other story should be the first episode, which was one that we had decided to kill in the structure. And I was like, okay, if that's what you think. And so then we wasted like six (laughs) weeks on that one and ultimately ended up killing it anyway, because it had all the same problems to it that we had identified initially but do you anyway. like uh do you like withhold the i told you so in that situation no, no. i mean i don't say i, t- I it, like i you know i have a lot of insane ideas that <laughs> like don't work either that'd be really bad if i yeah all right so when you get a first draft of the first episode mm-hmm. who do you play that for me what do you mean well so sarah and i always do when she gets the first draft she plays it just the two of us do it and then basically what you, we usually, it depends on how much time we have, but basically it's just like the two of us try and get it kind of to a point where it at least resembles the thing we're trying to say, uh-huh. you know, kind of takes us a little while sometimes. Um, so we fix all the things that are obvious and try and tighten it in a way that it is more in line with the thing we were trying to say. And then at that point we take it to an edit with always with Ira and then there are certain This American Life producers that are really helpful to us, but you kind of have to work off their schedule. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like whoever's available. But we did, especially for the first episode, the first episodes are so hard, you know, and you go through so many drafts. So I think Nancy Updike, Brian Reed, Hannah Jaffe-Wall, all of those guys came in on edits. Well, that's the question I have sort of is that first draft that you play for people, how close is that to what I heard? It's the same. Oh, the very first draft, actually, you know, initially our idea was that we were going to, yeah, see what I mean? Crazy structures. (laughs) We were going to like tell parts of stories and then let them off like at certain moments and pick up another story. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) this is so stupid because it sounds so obviously like it wouldn't work. There was a theory behind it, which is when you're in the courthouse, it's not like things get resolved that day, right? So you're kind of constantly, the actual experience of being in the courthouse is sort of always being like sort of at the beginning and middle of a bunch of stories. And so um, we were trying to see if we could model and mimic that, but it ended up... <laughs> I feel like people should know that like you cannot keep a straight face while you're talking <laughs> so about it. so stupid. <laughs> it was so stupid. I mean, of course it wouldn't have worked. So, but that is a draft that we had played of where we do not resolve that first bar fight story. Uh-huh. And I think the problem with it then was everyone was just like, I don't even have any idea why you're telling me this story then, because it's really small. And then when I would explain why why we were doing it, and I was just like, I can't believe this is the one they point to as working. And this is so many of the cases where everyone in the end is like, great. And I just was like, the price that this woman paid (laughs) is, is rough. And it's not acknowledged. And everyone kind of pointed out like, oh, I like that. But you'd have to get to the end of her story in order to point all of that out. Mm -hmm. And we were like, all right. So, so yeah, it was kind of like some of those first drafts are pretty different. Like we didn't tell the full story. And is that, you've only done three seasons and one season of S-Town, mm-hmm. but you've been making stories in audio for a really long time. Is that just what it takes? Is there no way to do it faster? Is that just like 
how it's going to go? I think there's totally a way to do it faster. I don't think it'll be as emotional or intimate or layered. So because I feel like I've heard other shows that do it faster and kind of like a little bit just a different style. There's just like a way different style. And I think that works, too. That's just like it doesn't you don't feel that emotional in those stories and you don't feel like necessarily like super connected to them. You don't feel like completely immersed in the way that you can with like a novel or a movie or a TV show where you sort of feel surrounded by the characters. So for us, I feel like if we're trying to go for the kind of immersion experience, I I don't know any other way except for stumbling around until we get to it. But I do think that there's a faster way to do it where it maybe has other strengths. And I would like to definitely we've talked about trying to explore that. Yeah, because it's I used to feel so bad for documentary filmmakers where I was like, oh, my God, you must be so bored. And the idea of I mean, I still kind of feel that way. The idea of spending like seven years on the same story to then play it at a film festival. I was just like, oh, my God, that sounds <laughs> awful. But I do feel a little like I'm in that position now where it's like two years on the same story. It's a little bit of a grind. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we've actually been talking about is there a different We've talked about is there a different model for doing it, but I think ultimately the form kind of follows the function. So we'd have to find the story first and then think like, is there a faster way to do this kind of story? That's interesting. The thing I was kind of asking about was more like um, despite lots of experience, is stumbling a guarantee? Oh, for me, it is. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. um, for me, it the is. The process is not like um, you do this enough times and then suddenly you can see it immediately. Well, I would think, like, of course, well, like that can happen because I worked at This American Life for 18 years and that definitely happened. You know, we, I became a lot faster and uh, telling stories and just like a lot easier and they're certain things that you know and you just get to it all a lot faster do you have like rules mm-hmm. what are the rules i mean there's all the like what are you listening for like what's at stake and what are you listening for and why are you telling me this and like that kind of always has to be like you have to be able to answer kind of that at, every single moment of the story. You have to always know when you're listening to a story the answer to those three questions. And I think that's what we're doing in the edits because, you know, you have whole sections where you're just like, I liked it. I didn't know what you were, I didn't know why we were listening to it, you know? And so then you're just like, fuck. I mean, are those the same questions in a series? It's just kind of like harder to answer them when you're doing something that's six hours long or 10 hours long? No, because they're, they're always something you should be able to answer in the moment, you know? Like, so I feel like, it's harder with the structure of season three. Here's the thing. Who committed this murder? That has got to be part of the reason people do so many of those stories is because it's the easiest structure of all time. <laughs> like, I did not appreciate what a clarifying question that is that has stakes and drives, drives, drives. Like, you don't have to restate it. You don't have, like, it keeps the tension for so long. I, we were trying to think of, is there an easier question than who committed the murder? And I'm not sure if there, it, it's the easiest one. It's really easy. It might be why, you know, 
a lot of people do those stories now. Yeah. Um, so I missed that. I mean, the easier, only easier one might be like, who fucked who? That, yeah, 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 yeah. Then you get sex and murder. But um, what, like with season three especially, it was hard because it felt like we were sort of like gearing up the machinery of every episode every time, but then hitting a point after like the fourth episode of being like, wait, why are you doing this at all? Yeah. So we do have a reset at the beginning of episode six. Okay, so that one's done. Season three is done. Now season are you, three is done. Now are you like casting about for season four? What do you do now? Like what did you do today? Well, now I'm working on a smaller, it's going to be a smaller project about public education. And I'm doing that with Hannah Jaffe Walt, who's a producer at This American Life. And she's covered education. She's an intended education reporting um, at This American Life. And so this is a project that it's really funny, but um, we've been working on it on and off for like three years. Um, so finally, we will do that one. Um, so and that'll be like a standalone thing or a This American Life standalone? It'll thing? be a standalone thing because it's like five episodes. It's kind of long, but it's not like as long as a serial, but longer than a This American Life thing. Um, but I think we might put that one down the serial feed <laughs> just because it's not it's not huge, you know right. what I mean? It doesn't, it's not, so I don't know, that's, anyway, we don't have to talk about business, <laughs> but this is a business question, but we might do it that way. But um, anyway, so I'm working on that with Hannah, and then at the same time, Sarah is looking into two stories that she's been interested in for a while, but also we're a little killing time because we're waiting for Dana to be finished with a story she's doing for This American Life so that she can come back because Sarah and Dana have an idea that they want to do for like a TV show. So they're going to take like, I don't know, like six months to try and see if they can figure out a way to get that thing to work. Will you work on that? Yeah, then I'll work on that too. You into the TV stuff? I like this one. I like this one a lot. I, I normally have not you know, we option a lot of the stories, like they get optioned for TV and film, like after we do them and This American Life stories do all the time and stuff too. And I've always had a hard time sticking with that. I'm so done with thinking about that story. Like I don't have any other thoughts about that story. Like we did it. I don't have anything more to say. So it's really hard for me, like those options, because I'm just like, sure, it, but you, you know, kind of yeah. to the producer or the director or the screenwriter that I'm like, you're going to have to kind of drive this train because I don't I don't have a lot of ideas. But this one is not an adaptation of a story. So this one, which I probably I can't talk about what it's about, but because those guys probably don't even totally really know what it's about. Or we have three different ideas of what it's about, I think. But this one I'm really excited about. I'm excited to try it. So that would be setting aside six months, which is a little hard because that's six months that we're not making season four of Serial. That doesn't worry you? I mean, I've got Hannah's thing. And then I'm also talking with Nancy Updike about a story that she's looking into. And I was like, maybe that. And that one, if she does it, it's a, it, that is a big story. So I was like, maybe that's season four of Serial. We've always talked about maybe Serial doesn't have to always be Sarah. It kind of depends on like what they find in the next couple of months, you know? And I'm also always open to, like, stories might just come up. You know what I mean? Yeah. They just come up. So probably something will come up as well, like, and we'll have to make some choices. At this point with, like, the success that 
you guys have had with Serial and S-Town, do you feel like people will just stick with you? Not necessarily, but I do think we have more, you know, because the brand, basically, like, it's still a strong name, you know what I mean? I think, like, and there are still, like, a lot of people who have only ever listened to one podcast, and that was the first season of Serial. Those are people who also don't know that we have second and third seasons of Serial. Like, Serial to them is just the Adnan Syed story, and there's never been anything else. Um, And I get that, you know what I mean? But I do think, like, yeah, like, we're kind of known for making pretty good stuff. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So in that way, I don't worry about it that much, you know? Like, I feel like we've got it, like, it's nice to have this American life as well of being, like, run anything. We didn't run anything from S-Town or season two or three. We ran the first episode of Serial on This American Life. I do actually think maybe the first episode of Hannah's thing could run, would be actually a really good This American Life episode. So we might do that. So that always helps, you know what I mean, to get the word out as well. This American Life has always been really great for other podcasts too. People put their, they take their stories and I think everyone always says it really helps their numbers. What's your relationship with uh, This American Life now? I mean, we're all still together. You know what I mean? We're all on the 11th floor. (laughs) And um, we kind of, there's a lot of movement back and forth. Everyone kind of, we have a thing like Serial and This American Life are two separate companies, but we had, there is a holding company that provides like services. And so that's like how we do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I am the CEO of Serial. Ira is the CEO of This American Life. We So we do make choices together, you know what I mean, for overhead stuff and everything. And we share a CFO and we share a COO and all that kind of stuff. But then also, like, the staff is moving back and forth all the time. Sarah's been doing a lot of edits for This American Life because now Brian's taking off um, and he's going to do another project. So it's kind of like there's a lot of flowing back and forth. For you, was there ever any, like, uh, thought of spinning this stuff out on its own? What do you mean? Like... You worked with Alex Bloomberg for years and he went and started his own podcast oh, uh-huh. company. Like you started a podcast company within another company. Mm-hmm. I just wonder whether there's had, had ever been this idea that like those could live further outside that umbrella. I think they could. I mean, Serial is technically, if you wanted to, like Ira can own Serial or WBZ, honestly. I mean, like when we started Serial, it was just on the surplus budget of This American Life. We were all employees at that time of WBEZ. I owned half of This American Life. BEZ owned half of This American Life. They then separated. And then technically, you know, Ira then owned Serial. And incredibly graciously, like, he turned around and gave it to me and Sarah. And we spun it off as its own company. And then so it's owned by me and Sarah and Ira. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Um so we're like sort of a separate company, but like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Only sort of. <laughs> I mean, nothing has really totally changed. You know <laughs> what I mean? Um, so yeah, like going off and starting a whole new company, I don't have the entrepreneurial spirit that way. And I don't think I have the confidence of doing that either. But um, but I'm a lot more into the stories. You know what I mean? You I have the confidence I, on like the business side? Yeah, kind of. And I don't have any interest either. When it comes to business stuff, and I am, I do do all the business stuff, but I feel like the business stuff is always in service of the stories. Mm-hmm. So I kind of need to know what is the story or what is the show 
that we're building an infrastructure around. And then I'm fine with doing the business stuff. But to build an infrastructure for the sake of then creating other stuff, I lose steam kind of quickly. <laughs> and I'm just like, why don't we just build it when we need it? Uh-huh. So, so that works better for me. I feel like you should write like a business book. That's like a different, like a, uh, that's a, that's a different approach to being the CEO. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think, I don't, I think it's probably been proven in the business world to be a bad, to be a bad path. I feel like it's working out all right. It's working out okay right now. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about, um, uh, they're like 18 years at this American Oh Life. yeah. I have questions about the early days and I'm interested in that, but I went back and listened to a bunch of the stories that you oh did. Oh my God, really? Yeah. And uh that I did? Yeah. That my you, voice? Yeah, with oh, your voice. No. Yeah. No. The I listened to the first one actually. You sound very different. What is it? It's about um like fight night. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. Do you remember that one? I do remember fight night. Oh, is it like a Lucha Libre thing? Yeah. Yeah, but what's it about? Is that actually the problem with the story? <laughs> I mean, no. It's like... <laughs> I don't even remember what it was about. What year was it? It's episode 93. Okay. I don't know what year that is. Okay, that would be probably 98. How old are you then? Uh, I would have been in 98. I would have been 26, 25. Uh, I started in 97. I started in March of 97. You legitimately sound different. Like, a little bit sound like a different person smoking (laughs) (laughs) it's terrible i don't know you kind of sound like like uh more of a smoker than to be oh really yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's very like um could be the mics that it it's great and you're very deadpan oh my god pretty deadpan yeah Probably I was just terrified. I really hate doing stories. I hate reporting. I hate doing stories. It is the world's... That is why I don't do stories. Here's the whole thing I want to ask you about. This is the whole reason that you're here. Mm -hmm. Is This is the thing I need to understand. Is um, how can you be this person... I'm going to embarrass you for a second. Like In this audio world, Mm -hmm. you are like a deity. People call you a genius. This is a thing that is true. Uh, all the time about these stories and you're sitting there and helping these world-class incredible reporters think through their things but you don't want to do it no why I I find it it's so uncomfortable for me why it's I'm not good at it I'm not good at it I'm not both I don't love talking to people I don't already know <laughs> and um, and so I'm very self-conscious and then I'm not a good writer. I feel like I've now finally 20 years in have become a functional writer. So I can write for somebody else in a very functional way. But luckily now I'm in a position of where I rarely ever have to do that because I'm working with such good writers. But mainly like I really hated like being edited. I felt so uncomfortable and exposed and vulnerable and I realized I did a story one time of where I was so miserable and uncomfortable in the edits. I just wanted to get it over with. And, you know, obviously always your editor will suggest things sometimes. And it's up to the reporter to protect the story and say, I don't think that's fair or that's not what I want to do or 
that's not true or something. And I recognized in myself that I would completely sell these people out to have this whole thing be over with. And that felt really dangerous. Like I was like, I, you shouldn't even have me near a microphone then because I'm untrustworthy. I'm so uncomfortable that you shouldn't trust me because I just want this over with. So that's, and I don't need to do it. I don't feel a desire to do it. Sometimes it's a little frustrating because I'm, I always have ideas. And so it's a little frustrating if I can't get other people to sign on to my, you know, cause I'm constantly lobbying people to do the stories that I think that they should do. And I can get frustrated too. If I'm just like, no, not like that, you know? Um, <laughs> So that can be a little bit frustrating, but I also know they're so much better at it than I am, and I wouldn't want to do it, and I would just mess it up anyway, and stuff like that. So sometimes it can get a little frustrating, but you know, I have enough people who do my ideas. I mean, we just did season three with all my ideas. <laughs> like, it was fine. You know what I mean? Like, I have people, like, they'll do stories that I want them to do. Do you like being behind the scenes, or do you just not? want to do the reporting stuff or both I guess I don't feel that it's not that behind the scenes just because it's not like radio reporters are that visible you know what I mean so it doesn't yes, feel like there's sort of, a although huge you, difference between me and the reporters except except for, for the, cereal for cereal yes yes the genre defining thing that you made which became about i a totally recognize in that way that sarah really took the hits on that <laughs> one and i was like oh my god thank god it's not me but it's kind of amazing that like um attention and being the person who's like getting critiqued is so uncomfortable to you and then you were the other half of that thing i know that got the most attention ever. I know. Well, Sarah doesn't like it either. She's even more thin-skinned than I am. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, Sarah does not know how to use social media. So <laughs> so I'm just like, that's good. You can't respond to people. You can't. Otherwise, she might. She could be like a troll. <laughs> I don't know. She could. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. No, and she holds back, too. She doesn't respond to emails, sometimes, occasionally. But I like it when she does. Ira Glass does that occasionally, too. We'll respond to, like, a totally random critical email. And you don't know why it's this one that he chose that just got under his skin. But he's so good at it. It's so good. Oh, my God. He's so good. And they feel great, like, reading the response to them. And then always everybody capitulates right away. Are they, like, um, um, are they, like, uh, empathetic or no they... he really he he breaks them down no in a cheerful way he will completely break them down as to why in every way that they're wrong and that it's like kind of like unfair and annoying the thing that they're saying it's really fun he doesn't do it that often I would say he does it like three times a year but he'll he'll either forward it to us or sometimes CC us mm -hmm. he did one I remember after the first season of Serial there was a review of the final episode in the New York Times, which was crazy that we were getting reviewed in the, like reviewed what? <laughs> and um, it was really, it was really positive too. I have to say, it was a very, very positive review. That of course is going to have like you know one part that like is like you know a little critical and stuff. And I love that Ira took issue with it, and he. Did he call the Times report? No, I think he wrote him. 
And it was ridiculous that he was defending us that way. Like, we were just like, this is so silly. You totally don't have to do this. But it felt really good. It felt like somebody was in your corner. Mm -hmm. It felt like he loved us. I've tried to keep it in mind of doing it for other people sometimes, too. And so sometimes I will do it, um, engage a listener or something like that to defend Sarah on her behalf or something like that, just because I care. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm so sorry. I forgot how I went down this path. Oh, yeah, we're thin skinned, whatever. Anyway, yeah. So how- oh, sorry. I don't like reporting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was getting at. I mean, did you, when you decided, like, I'm not going to do this anymore, did you feel great relief? Do you yes. have any regrets about that? No. No, I felt a total relief. And no, I don't have regrets about it. I mean, it was also coupled with, at the time, you know, when I started on This American Life, at that point, six, This American Life was like, I think had been a national show for about six months. It, I think they'd been together for about a year or something. And so it was three producers. It was me, Nancy Updike, Elise Spiegel, and then Ira was the host. And we couldn't do reruns because we didn't have a catalog to do reruns. And so we were kind of just like killing ourselves, working all the time. Also, just the technology. We didn't know what we were doing, and we didn't have the technology that we have now. So... Just everything took a long time. Everything took longer um, to do. And so there were like real system problems in what we were doing. Like I remember one of the main ones is that we would come up with themes for shows. You know, we would assign each of us would have like three shows coming up, you know, that we were in charge of. And then each of us would just start to work the phones because we really <laughs> email wasn't even that popular then. <laughs> so you start working the phones and just calling all the contributors being all like, do you got anything on, you know what I mean? That didn't turn out the way I thought it was. Do you got anything on like bad idea? Um, do you, you know what I mean? And, and then they very thoughtfully and kindly would genuinely consider it and then call you back with a pitch But by the time they called you back, it was like three days later. And at that point, you would be buried in your next story that you were doing. So you didn't have time to deal with them. And I remember after like two or three years of doing that, I think it was Jack Hitt who told me, it's not a very nice way to treat us. (laughs) Like we actually put thought into this. We care. We give you a pitch and then you just... Never respond. Yeah, you ghost me, and then you call me two and a half months later as if this never happened, and you just ask me about a bunch of other themes, and do I have anything for that? And it's kind of getting on my nerves. And I thought that was a really, really fair criticism, and I was like, I hear you. See how that would be irritating. <laughs> so at that point, like it was kind of like, you guys, we need to, we need a better system. We need to like organize this better of where certain people do certain things and stuff. And so it was like just in those ways, naturally, I was like. Why don't I, I'll run the theme list. Why don't I be the person who is the consistent person? So I'm going to do less like reported stories so that I'm more available for the contributors so that we're not ghosting them like this. You know what I mean? So it was like, it just started becoming more clear that like we really actually need somebody in a position and it's very helpful that I don't want to report stories <laughs> and that I don't leave for like three months while I was go that, and do it. Was that like a known quantity? Did everyone know that you didn't like doing it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because Iroh always would encourage me to do it and I was just like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And he was always incredibly yeah, supportive and he was just like, you're just, you don't like that you're bad at it, but 
there's the only way to get better at it is just to keep doing it. And, you know, you talk, you're a good talker. Just you just have to learn how to write like you talk. And I couldn't even imagine that. I was like, oh, my God, I have like no vocabulary. All I do is say like all the time. I'm not a good talker. I just I just I just. Do you think he was right, though? That I would have gotten better? Of course. I've gotten better at the job. I'm sure I would have gotten. I've I've already noticed that I've I'm better at doing it and stuff. But I do really think for these stories and to pull off both what they're doing at This American Life and what I'm kind of doing now, you kind of need, I do think you need somebody who isn't going to disappear on their own stories for months at a time. And actually, that's a struggle that This American Life is dealing with right now because now almost all their producers at This American Life are also reporters, which was sort of a shift that the show made like seven or eight years ago of where more of the stories now are actually produced kind of in-house. But now it's kind of a problem because who's running this thing, you know? Everyone wants to just go make their stuff. Yeah, kind of. Well, I think that's part of why I'm asking is like that's been my experience in this audio world too is like everyone just kind of wants to make their stuff. I know. It's really hard. Except for you. I don't. Yeah, I really don't. (laughs) Trying to encourage more people. I, I have totally tried to encourage more people to take my job. I'm just like, you get to be very bossy. You get to be kind of a dilettante. I don't work on the things I don't want to do. If I'm working with a contributor and they're like, or a producer, and it's right at the point where it looks like things are going to get kind of hard and hairy, like I can leave. <laughs> like, it's nice. I read this um, commencement speech that Ira gave at oh, Columbia. Yeah, I just May. read it. I saw it was going around on the internet. I feel like it's like a real like uh, ode to you. It's really nice. I wondered if, yeah, the Columbia graduates were just like, who the hell is she? Here, you can read the end. You want me to read it out loud? I want you to read it out loud. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Choose your jobs with a careful eye on who your editor will be. Good news is very few editors, in my experience, are awful. The overwhelming majority are solid, decent, helpful. And then if you're lucky, you get somebody like the people I work with, like Julie Snyder, people who make everything they touch so much better. That is so nice. That is so nice. It's pretty nice. Yeah, it's really nice. I know. No, that is that I was really, really touched. I was really, really touched about that. Um, We have a really, a really nice relationship it's like a little hard to to even talk about like we've known each other for so long and like because now Ira and I have been together for 25 years 20 years 20 years a little longer um and like you know we've been through a lot together like we we've had huge fights and um we've had resentments and then we've had you know like we've shared so much of our like greatest moments you know what I mean and I admire him so much and the things that he's taught me that I didn't realize he was teaching me in the moment that I've learned later um, even still have it now like kind of now I'm taking a little less from it editorially and a little more now from it like as a person and business wise he's incredibly gracious and giving and and it's not a problem for him to do and it takes nothing from him and he wants to do it and I'm like yeah I want to be like that I want to be like him but yeah you know what I mean like I don't know and like I know his 
you know, his parents and like his sisters and, um, you know what I mean? He knows my parents and like, of course. And then, you know, there's a picture of him dancing with my grandma at my wedding and like, you know, he knows my husband pretty well. And I don't know, just like all that kind of stuff. Like we've just been around each other for a really long time. Yeah, I, I, I actually don't know what that's like. It's I, emotional. It's kind of emotional. Like, it's different, you know, like my relationship with Sarah now is because we're both women and we're like the same age, that one is much more like kind of, I think, what you would expect. Like, we're really up each other's asses. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And we definitely turn to each other to talk about I'm having a problem with the kids. Like, wait, can I ask you about this one thing? You know, like I went to the doctor the other day and I had this, you know what I mean? Like we have those kinds of conversations. We're very, very close and and, it, and it's more emotional. Whereas like Ira and I wouldn't do that kind of stuff together. You know, you're still like my boss and there's a difference of that. But like the thing that he built that is so incredible that he built, like I watched him do it, you know, and, and like was kind of next to him while he did it. And it's really sweet. It's really, really, really sweet for him. This commencement speech thing means so much to me because I didn't, I don't know my worth, I think, or I didn't, or whatever. I just didn't, never really knew if, it's hard when you're not doing the stories sometimes because there is a little bit of a culture at This American Life of where you're as good as your last story. And so if you're not doing stories, sometimes that would be hard where you wouldn't know exactly where you stand and how important are you and do you even matter and and that kind of stuff. And and there was always kind of a culture, I think, because everybody started there so young that um, there was a lot of emotion and ego and everything built into it. Like work was everything, you know, and that defined your self-worth. And so I had a hard time with all, a lot of that stuff, you know. It, it really only kind of got better, like when I had kids, which is something – we're like honestly part of the reason I wanted to have a kid is because I knew I was like I need something that feels like it's more important than this job and it worked it helps <laughs> and I think a lot of other people that I've now talked to there have said the same thing that like it helps but anyway I haven't always known if I'm that important and and so it's really sweet for Ira to say this stuff I really appreciate it you know I really appreciate it's really kind because I that's how I feel about him you didn't know that because that was like the culture of the place? My worth? Yeah. Well, I'm not doing stories, you know what I mean? So so sometimes that is hard because you're just like, I don't know if I'm that important. I don't know if the decisions that I'm making are that important. I didn't, there wasn't like totally a way to hear the words good job, you know? And it wasn't like the kind of place where you got like reviews or anything like that. You know what I mean? We were supposed to do reviews and uh, we never did them. The only time when we started doing them was because finally WBZ wrote me into doing the review. So I started doing reviews of the other producers, but I don't know if Ira ever gave me a review. But like, yeah, so you don't get a lot of opportunities, you know what I mean, to hear that stuff. In the uh, in the Julie Snyder like uh, self worth timeline, mm -hmm. where does serial fit? Like, uh, had you sorted that stuff out by then? It really helped. It helped. It made me feel like, look at this. We made this thing by ourselves. 
like, and it was big, and we can do this. That really helped. It helped, I think, in the self-worth thing. I think I felt proud of it and confident that we could do this. Like, I, I felt that way at This American Life, too. Like, we had taken on a lot of, like, the biggest project I had done before Serial, like, a, two years before, was we had done, and now it seems smaller, but at the time it felt, like, big, was um, this two-part This American Life thing about Harper High School yeah. on the south side of Chicago. And so that was, that was, but see, that's one of those things where it's my idea and then I go out and I get other people to do it who can do it so much better than me. They make it so much better. Initially, my idea was a little different. I wanted to do all the shootings over Memorial Day weekend and we would report out each shooting. But then that started becoming very clear that that was going to be like a logistical problem because it's like kind of hard to be like a reporter from New York and you show up at someone's door and then you're just like, why? Who shot that dude? <laughs> and why? Um, although people are, are much more willing to talk about it as long as you're not in a courtroom than you would think. But um, but then, so then that one kind of morphed into setting it inside Harper. But it was sort of a similar idea. But like that made me feel good, like doing that show. Like I was like, that was a big project. I had an idea. I gathered the reporters. I gathered the people together like that I thought could do it. I managed them over the course of the six months that they were reporting. And then we put together this whole big project. And that felt like we really pretty much, I mean, Ira came in as an editor on it, but it was really like kind of like I did it on my own. And so that gave me confidence too, that I was like, I can do these things. How long was that after you started the show? Oh, Harper? Yeah. Oh, that was like right before Serial. I think yeah. we did it in like 2013 or something like that. I mean, we had done other stuff too. I know. But... I just, it's um, it's kind of wild to hear, you know? I know. Yeah. Okay, I only have one more question. Then, okay. And you can go. Uh, like, uh, uh, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Oh. Like, here, here you are. You've been working at this place for however many uh, years. Mm -hmm. It's had all these iterations and different chapters and lives and then you like started this whole next one like do you just do this forever is that how this works I think so I mean I would like to get to a point where I could I would really like to develop somebody who does what I do I'm st I'm having a hard time finding somebody who doesn't want to report stories so that's like kind of my idea right now is like I got to try and see if I can find somebody who wants to do what I do and then see if I can bring them along and do that so that we could be in a position of where we could be creating more stuff. That's like kind of our we have a sort of pipeline problem right now. Yeah. But if I could be in a position someday of where we're facilitating people making cool stuff and I don't have to worry about money that much. Yeah, I'm totally happy with to keep on keeping on how do you find that person i don't know i don't know i realize that every podcast company is asking themselves that question yeah maybe it's not that easy everyone wants to do their own thing. <laughs> they don't want to make their own shows i know i gotta find a sort of unambitious well do you think it's clearly bad writer clearly you're not un unambitious right? right so what is that thing though can you like are you able to put your finger on it like what is this like genetic radio mutation you have that makes you not want to do this when everyone else who does this wants to be on the mic i don't know i don't know how to even define it seems so natural and normal to me i don't see that hosting your own show seems so great <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I don't, I'm not sure why so many people want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on this one. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. listening to long form i'm max linsky my co-hosts are aaron lammer and evan ratliff our editor who uh always does a great job but put in a lot of extra work this week on a really long episode is janelle piper thank you janelle our intern is tyler mccloskey our sponsors are mailchimp and pit writers thanks to them for making this thing possible and thanks so much to julie snyder for coming in and taking all that time it was a uh genuine thrill truly We'll see you next week. Don't forget, live, long-form podcast, party, show taping, Taffy Broadesser, Ackner, Evan Ratliff, new book, The Mastermind. It's all going to happen February 13th at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. Go get your tickets. They are totally free. Come hang out. We'd love to see you. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.